Boward pointed to the short dog in the other man's hand. Where you guys buy your bottles? The man pointed with the bottle down towards Santa Monica Boulevard. Mostly over there at Mako's. Boward knew the place, an all-night market that primarily sold booze, smoke, rolling papers, pipes, and condoms. Ballard had responded to numerous calls there over her years on The Late Show. It was a place that drew rip-off artists and assaults like a magnet. Consequently, there were cameras inside and outside the business. You think that's where Eddie got his fiver? She asked. Yup, said the kid. Had to be, said Short Dog. Ain't no other place around here open late. You heard about Eddie having trouble with anybody? She asked. Not everybody like Eddie, Short Dog said. A gentle soul, Raspy added. Boward waited. Nobody volunteered anything about Eddie having trouble. Okay, guys, thanks, Boward said. Be safe. Yup, said the kid. Don't want to end up like Eddie. Hey, Miss Detective, said Beret. Why are you asking all these questions? Nobody give a shit about Eddie before. Well, they do now. Good night, guys. Boward got back in her car and drove down to Santa Monica Boulevard. She turned right and went down three blocks to a run-down strip shopping plaza where Mako's Market was located. The market anchored one end of the plaza and a 24-hour donut shop held down the other end. In between, there were two empty businesses, a subway franchise, and a storefront business that offered one-stop shopping for notary needs, photocopying, and losing weight or quitting cigarettes through hypnosis. The area patrol car was parked in front of the donut shop, confirming the cliché. Bauer got out of her car and waved her hands, palm down, signaling smooth sailing. Behind the wheel of the patrol car, she could see Rollins, one of the officers who had responded to the fatal fire the other night. He flashes lights in acknowledgement. Boward assumed his partner was inside the donut shop. Mako's was a fortress. The front door had an electronic lock that had to be opened from inside. Once buzzed in, she saw the business was built like a bank in a high-crime neighborhood. The front door led to an anteroom that was 10 feet wide and 6 feet deep. There was nothing in this space except an ATM machine against the wall to the left. Front and center was a stainless steel counter with a large pass-through drawer and a wall of bulletproof glass rising above it. A steel door with triple locks was to the right of the counter. A man sat on a stool on the other side of the glass. He nodded at Boward in recognition. How's it going, Marco? She said. The man leaned forward, pushed a button, and spoke into a microphone. All is okay, officer, he said. Ballard had heard a story about Marco Linkoff having ordered the sign out front many years ago and then accepting the misspelled sign that arrived at half price. She didn't know if that was true. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading Magazine is a monthly publication dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. 
Today, I'm talking to Michael Connolly about his new book, The Night Fire. Michael, welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Thanks for having me on. The Night Fire is set in L.A., and you paint a pretty grim picture of L.A., but you still seem to have a great affection for it. How do you reconcile those two feelings? Um, I know it's hard to do, I guess, when you read the books and say, how can this guy love that city? But, you know, I write about detectives who kind of, by virtue of their trade, um, see the underside of the city and uh, the negative sides. I don't think in my books I dwell enough on the um, the things that I love about the city, and that's probably uh, failing on my part. But, you know, I'm, like many people there, have an affection for the city, good and bad. But um, also, there's there's a duty, I think, if you're going to write um, about even fiction, if you're going to write fiction about Los Angeles, you know, to try to, to try to get it right and to try to reflect a little bit on what's going on. And, you know, this book, um, you know, has um, some of the grim sides, as you say, but I think it's what I'm showing in the book is accurate to, to the place. Um, it may be getting back to your original question. It maybe it's not balanced out enough with the blue sky. Um, but, but it, believe me, it's there. Of course, there's a long tradition of LA or American crime fiction, but specifically LA crime fiction, uh, I guess, going back to Raymond Chandler, uh, Dashiell Hammett, I guess more recently, people like uh, Elmore Leonard, James Elroy, Jim Thompson, do you feel part of that tradition? And if so, what do you draw from that tradition? Well, I, I do feel part of it. I mean, we're all kind of at different times and, and so forth trying to capture the essence of the city. And, you know, going back to your first question, there, there's good and bad in the city, but it seems to draw people. Um, it's a place of second chances. You know, um, I'm one of these people. I was trying to write books for 10 years in another place. And didn't happen, so I moved, you know, to Los Angeles to try it one more time, and I got lucky, and it happened. Um, and that seems to be the kind of thing that happens with many of the inhabitants of Los Angeles. They come there, you know, um, for a second chance. And um, you know, I that my second chance, I was drawn there because of the writings of people like Raymond Chandler and Ross McDonald, and even James Elroy in a more contemporary way. And so, yeah, I kind of feel part of that tradition, and. Um, and as you kind of alluded to, it's probably the city in the United States that has been written about the most in terms of crime fiction and mystery and so forth. And so the stakes are high. You know, you're first of all, you're looking for a path that somebody hasn't trod before in the city. Um, so you're trying to be unique and so forth. But you're so you're trying to be unique at the same time you're trying to fit into that pantheon and hopefully, if you're lucky, get compared to some of those great writers and and be seen as someone that is following that tradition. Does the fact that it's in Hollywood or Hollywood is there make that task all that more difficult? There's a difficulty in, as I said before, people have written about it for a long time. A uh, hundred years people have been writing about Hollywood and the foibles of Hollywood and the, uh, you know, the dreams that die in Hollywood. So it's, it's a very familiar thing. But at the same time, I found almost unexpectedly as a writer that people are interested in L.A. and Hollywood because I think it's seen as a kind of harbinger of social change. If something's going to sweep around the world, it might have its origin in Los Angeles and in the entertainment industry and what that projects around the world. So there's a built-in 
good part of that, and that is, I didn't realize this till I was writing books about L.A., but people in Australia want to read about L.A. for some reason. People in, in Paris want to read about L.A. And I think if I had been writing about Pittsburgh or something, that would not have happened. So it, it gave me like a, a, a foot up on, on other writers, I felt. Um, and whether that's fair or not, you can debate. But um, it kind of put me on the map faster than other people because I was writing about Hollywood. And so the second part of that is, okay, you're going to get that advantage if you're going to write about Hollywood, but you better get it right or you better get um, a unique voice um, in there that will make you, uh, once you get people to check you out, that they'll stay with you. It's impossible to talk about L.A. crime fiction without mentioning the word noir, and it's a sort of a common thread right through this tradition. Uh, is that something that you think about, the atmosphere of L.A.? Or does that come naturally to you, or is it something you have to really think about? Well, I would dare say it comes naturally, but what comes naturally to me comes from me reading all over the place and being a voracious reader, which put me on the path to, um, you know, doing what I do. So if it comes naturally, it's because it's, it's schooled in me from the earliest stages of my life of being a lover of crime fiction. It's not something when I sit down to write a book that I'm, I'm thinking those terms. In fact, yeah, I hope your, not question is, your next question is not what is noir because i can't answer that i no, don't i don't know exactly what it is um you know i mean my kind of definition is that you know people are the architects of their own demise or their own uh, failures um and i don't know if that kind of pl- applies to the most of the plots that i write um but i think there is a, an atmosphere in my books i try to have an atmosphere a, an as- atmosphere of that anything can happen you know and i think that more comes from the city as opposed to um you know a literary construct i mean i think it's a city where you look over your shoulder and um uh because anything can happen at any time it's a random place and i think that starts you know bleeding into the ideas of noir um and so to me it comes out of trying to be accurate about the city and it kind of comes across maybe that way your noir if i can say it is kind of like a, a full color noir maybe slightly bleached is yeah that- i like the saying it's slightly bleached out yeah you know when i moved there i didn't even move to la till i was 30 years old you know to work for the newspaper and this has become a cliche but an editor told me on my first day you know it's a sunny place for shady people and you know that's why we sell a lot of newspapers and um you know that's it's true. It's a true um, description of the place. Seems to elicit a lot of aphorisms like that, I guess. LA. Yeah. Yeah, I just remember I, back when I got into my Chandler, um, deep dive into Chandler when I was in college and I went and bought all the, the paperback books. The books all had a blurb on the cover. I still have those books actually on the shelf. Um, and it was a blurb from um, Ross McDonald. And I can't even remember it all off the top of my head, but it basically said that you know, Raymond Chandler invested the sun-blinded streets of Los Angeles with, with a romantic presence that has never been seen before or since. And um, that, that's a great blurb. It's always stayed with me, and especially the part about the sun-blinded streets. A lot of 
what this crime fiction is about is sort of exposing this or going behind this facade of sunshine and palm trees into this seedy underbelly which i guess it's famous for yeah i mean and it's also and it's famous because for it because people like that um to read about that like peeling back the layers here's the reality presented through you know mostly through hollywood and the entertainment industry and here's like the darkness the the dark heart that beats underneath it um that's really kind of a intoxicating theme i think to a reader i know that's what drew me into so many of the books i've read over the years i think a lot of australians might wonder whether all of what we've spoken about would be possible without American gun culture. Um, I think it's a good point. Um, you know, can you have the kind of crime novels that I write, others write, without the easy access to guns? You know, probably not. I mean, I mean, I, you know, a good writer is going to find a good story. You don't necessarily have a gun in it. But, you know, as I said earlier, it's a place where you look over, you got to look over your shoulder it's a place where um, there's a random feel um, to what happens, especially in the nighttime of Los Angeles. And a lot of that is bred from uh, the gun culture. I don't know if, what that exactly means, gun culture, but I mean the, the easy access to guns. Desperate people can get guns very easily in Los Angeles and my country. And that's a big part of... Um, what feeds into um, crime fiction. Your characters seem to come to life mostly through dialogue rather than prose. Is it a conscious effort on your part to tell the story through dialogue? I think so. I think it's kind of a holdover from my life as a journalist. And I was a crime reporter. And in newspapers back in the day, I haven't been a reporter in 25 years, so it was you know, a different media world at that time. But essentially, crime news was always given second shift you know it wasn't uh the important stuff of the day so they were never giving you enough room to tell your story and so you needed dialogue you needed quotes in a story but you just couldn't waste the space on quotes that didn't mean anything that didn't carry the story or didn't carry information and so as a reporter you you get you get a trained ear for that piece of dialogue that moves the story a step forward and I think I just carry that over into what I, I do. So I spend a lot of time on dialogue. Um, you, know, I, I, you know, I want every piece of dialogue to move the story forward. And if you're successful in doing that, you don't need a whole lot of description and so forth. You, you, that, that can su- suffice. Um, I think that's been accentuated for me in the last few years because I've been working on a TV show adaption of my Bosch books that... Um, and scripting and, and, and the visual arts are very much more reliant on dialogue than a, than a novel. Um, and so, again, it's like a reinforcement that dialogue is king and we have to um, pay a lot of attention to it. Was it an easy transition from writing novels to writing screenplays? No, not at all, because um, you, you lose one-third of the game. You know, you, you know in, um, in a book you have obviously what people say what they do but you're inside like harry bosch you're inside his head you're knowing what he's thinking and and you lose all that interior stuff when you go to a script and it's only about what he says and what he does and so you have to really dig dig hard and and learn and 
and be creative in terms of, of revealing interior thought and, and character through, through dialogue. The character of Bosch, Harry Bosch, was first introduced in 1992 through the Black Echo, and that character developed over, I think, another 21 books. And Ballard's been around for three books. The first, The Late Show, Dark Sacred Night, and now The Night Fire. Do you intend to keep developing her in the same way that you've developed Harry Bosch? Yeah, I mean, what I've done is, over and over again, I, when I introduce a character, and this would go all the way back to the, my first book with Bosch, when I'm writing that book, I don't know if there'll be another one with that character. It's it's a decision I make after I have a book in hand, and I you know ask myself, is there more to say? Can this character carry another story or several stories? And it's always a decision I make after I have something done. Um, but you know, I usually in the first books of of a character, I plan stuff that I can then come back to if there's going to be more stuff down the line. So the things that stand out for me are like the Bosch. You know, in the very first book, you find out his mother was murdered and it's never been solved. So there's a book there. You know, if I get the chance to do it or if I want to do it. You know, um, Lincoln Lawyer, I planted stuff about his past, connecting it with Bosch and so forth um, in a very oblique way. But I knew I could do a whole book that would go down that path if I wanted to. Um, you know, Ballard has a backstory of growing up almost homeless in Hawaii, and uh, maybe I just wanted to get a vacation or something, but I, that's something I can explore down the line. So I plan all this stuff, then I write the book, and then I look at the character and think about the character, and it's really one question, is there anything more to say? And sometimes there hasn't been. I've, I've abandoned characters after one or two books in the past, but... Bosch has obviously um, gone the distance. Uh, the Lincoln lawyer has hung around. And now Boward has really got my fascination. I really enjoy writing about her. Um, this is coupled with the fact that she's a single source inspiration. There's a real detective she's based on, and I have that person to help me, to um, you know, guide me as I'm writing stories. So um, that's like a great thing to have, and, and that pretty much means that she's going to be around for a while as well. A lot of your characters also seem to develop in partnership with other characters. There's Bosch and Ballard in this book, but Bosch also has a relationship with uh, Mickey Haller, Mm -hmm. who first appeared in Nine Dragons. That's his half-brother, Bosch, and John Jack Thompson, who uh, is mentioned in uh, The Night Fire. Bosch and his daughter Maddie. Bosch and Lucia Soto from The Burning Room. Uh, Is that something that you consciously move through, that character development through partnerships? I guess so. I mean, you know, Bosch is the center of the wheel, and there's a lot of spokes, and these, all these people you're talking about, big or small, to me, are spokes in Bosch's universe. And I just, I love crossing paths with different characters. That's one aspect. Um, I write like I read. I love that in books that I read when, when um, you kind of get a payoff for sticking with an author and you go, oh, I remember that character from that other book. It's, a, it's a, a good, fulfilling moment as a reader, and it's a good, fulfilling moment as a writer. So that's one reason why I do it. The other thing is um, I'm, I'm kind of considered pretty prolific. I do at least one book a year, sometimes two. But even still, I have the, this cast of characters, and if I don't, and fold them into a Bosch book, it could mean I don't write about them for three years, and I don't like doing that. I like knowing what these characters are up to. The books move in 
real time they're they're set in the year they're published and I don't like I don't like the idea of going like three years without knowing what Mickey Haller's up to so I fold him into a book and you can at least get a little sense of what he's up to is there some kind of massive spreadsheet in your head <laughs> I'm glad you said in your head yeah there is in my head but I don't have any it, I guess it would have been arrogant to start keeping tabs on all this stuff because then that would be me saying I know I'm going to write, be able to write all these books, and that's not the case at all. You never know when it won't happen anymore. So I never took the time to write anything down, uh, which I did, but I don't. And so it's pretty much in my head. A lot of the, the night fire deals with technology, and you always seem to keep up with technology. There's the usual DNA and ballistics things. The mobile phones and CCTV obviously play a big part, but there's another sequence in the night fire where Ballard is showing Bosch how to use phone tapping software. Is that something you know about already or do you research that or how yeah. do you get that information? Well, I mean, it's, it's research and then also I did a podcast last year uh, on a true crime and in that, pod, in that true crime or in that, that true investigation, they did wiretaps and I found it fascinating how they did it and what they got from it and so forth. So, you know, it's like... Water seeks its own level. I'm doing this podcast. I'm fascinated by all this wiretap stuff, so it ends up in a book I'm writing as well. And so, um, you know, I want my stuff to be accurate. I put an author's note in this book about where I took shortcuts in getting the approval for wiretaps and so forth. Um, but, you know, I, I the, the different legal steps can be really boring. That's not what is important. I think of what it is is about what's going on in an investigation where you reach a point where your only hope is really to do a wiretap and then to stir things up so people get on the phone talking about a case. I, I just loved all that when I heard it in, in, from Real Detectives in my podcast. And so, um, of course, that's going to end up in the book. Right through the book, um, other books too, but this book in particular, there's this very cool and unceasing momentum that goes right through the book. Do you yourself have to restrain yourself in the act of writing? I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, I'm trying to be accurate to, you know, how a real investigation goes. And um, more often than not, I think it's a growing accumulation of evidence, which to me is a growing momentum. I'm always mindful of momentum when I'm writing. That's, to me, the key thing about it. And, you know, I believe if you have momentum when you're writing, you're the reader's going to have momentum when they're reading it. And so... You know, I'm always trying to keep, um, you know, foot on the gas steady. I don't have to, like, you know, burn rubber, but I do have to keep things moving. Michael, after 33 novels, various awards, the Edgar Award and two Falcon Awards, numerous films and TV series, who do you write for these days? Well, it's the same. It's always been the same. You you, you kind of write for yourself, and I know that... that People are, I've always heard some writers go like, oh, that's crazy. But it's, it's really true. You, you write to please yourself because you have a big enough ego to think that if I like it, there's going to be people out there who like it. And I've always been that way, and that really hasn't changed over time. Um, so, you know, I, don't, I, do, I just think it's a wrong thing to, like, lick your finger and hold it up into the wind to see what do they want now or what do they want from me. Um, that's not the way to go about doing it. You just got to keep your head down and, and write a story that you choose for yourself and that hopefully you'll find. 
on a day-to-day basis fulfilling. You know, you'll make steps every day in the creation of this story, and they got to be fulfilling because if you don't feel it, the readers are not going to feel it. Michael Connolly, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thanks for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks for having me. The Night Fire by Michael Connolly is published by Allen and Unwin and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening.